When I first met him, his critique was similar to yours. His earlier hopes and projects as a union organizer were the basis for his commitment, and he didn't try to examine the nature of his earlier activity. He defended the union not only as an instrument with which workers could appropriate the productive forces, but as the only instrument suitable for this task. He rejected councils and all other forms of workers' organizations. He didn't classify councils into genuine and spurious types, but held that all councils could be manipulated by any well-organized group of politicians. He insisted that councils were by nature local organizations, whereas the union was a mass organization and therefore was less susceptible to being used by an outside group. He held on to these views even though he had watched a political group use councils as well as unions as the instruments with which it destroyed everything Zednik had fought to build. When I saw Zednik at the Prisoners Club a few days ago, he had changed his mind about virtually everything he had defended when I first met him. I didn't have much of a chance to talk to him because he got in an argument which became quite heated and which lasted most of the evening. We exchanged addresses and he agreed to visit me in the near future. I learned from his arguments that he has reached conclusions very similar to my present outlook. The argument began when an elderly man overheard Zednik and me. The very language we once used has to be demystified. Terms like workers' movement, union, popular, will should be abandoned until humanity regenerates itself and knows what it means by them. That sounds like an ambitious project, my friend. It, re it would require organizational resources that are not available to us at present, said the man. I later learned he had once been a politician had been arrested as a member of an inexistent oppositional organization, and had been an elementary school teacher since his release. Zednik turned to the man and snapped, Organizational resources are one of the things we don't need. That's yet another mystification. I don't understand you, the teacher said. Terms like workers' movement and union have been transformed into synonyms of the word state. They must be demystified. Their real meanings have to be restored. This requires some type of organization, minimally some type of publishing activity. That wasn't what I meant, Zednik said. Those terms don't have any real meanings. Perhaps demystification is the wrong word. Perhaps they have to be eliminated altogether. Each of those terms and countless others, including the word organization, refer to opposites. Take the word union. It refers at one and the same time to all workers and to the politicians who speak in the name of the workers. It's exactly the same type of term as commonwealth, which seems to refer to all human beings and to the world they share whereas in practice it refers only to the monarchs who ruled over human beings throughout history. I agree with you, the teacher said. There's no question that countless terms have been distorted out of recognition, but surely you're not denying that some kind of organized activity is required to combat this. I don't mean an organization of experts or a circle of intellectuals. I'm referring to an organization that transforms language by transforming reality itself. Like the workers' organizations of the past, councils, unions, and other forms which workers found useful in their struggle. Zednik raised his voice. Those organizations were never useful to workers. Unions as well as councils were useful only to politicians. All the forms you mentioned are forms which allowed politicians to make themselves representatives of the working people, embodiments of the workers' movement. You missed my comparison with the commonwealth. Just as in a commonwealth, the monarchs of a union speak for, dominate, repress, and sell their subjects. That's of course true today, but... Zednik interrupted the teacher and shouted, That's true whenever working people lose control over the language they use, whenever their very thoughts are couched in terms they don't understand, terms like organization. But that's ridiculous, the teacher objected. You seem to want every generation to destroy the language and invent one of its own. Maybe that's exactly what I want, Zednik said. For people to destroy the language along with all the other conditions they're born into, for every generation to shape its own world and invent its own language. 
How can we talk of a revolution in which people reshape their world if we can't even imagine people shaping their own language? How can people shape anything if they never leave the world they're born into? How can you even communicate with people if you don't agree to use the same language? The teacher asked. Do you think you communicate anything when you do use that language? Zednik asked. Of course there's a vicious circle in the whole problem of communication, but it's not as closed as you make it seem, the teacher said. I'm obviously aware that the, that the language of an epoch expresses the ideas of the ruling class, but this has never meant that it is therefore impossible to find support for the struggle against the ruling class. This has never meant that a, that a disciplined revolutionary organization need be permanently trapped in your vicious circle. Hasn't it meant that? Really never? Zednik asked. I'm under the impression that this was always the case. The very organizers of such a struggle are the instruments who restore the ruling class. Whether it's a question of unions or councils or workers' movements, the organizer's very language already embodies relations between rulers and ruled, relations of domination and submission. What in the world do you think support and discipline mean? Please don't identify my words with the words of the ruling politicians, the teacher insisted. I'm talking about opposition to the ruling order. You're talking about support for the politicians who head the organization, Zendik insisted. When I support the organization's leading politicians, I make their enemies my enemies. I become suspicious of their enemies, and in the end, I even become grateful to the police for liquidating people who were never my enemies, but enemies of the organization's leaders. You're talking about the ruling order, not about opposition to it. While Zednik spoke, I was again reminded of Claude's suspicion of George Alberts 20 years ago. He made a great deal out of the fact that Alberts was a strange person, and that therefore it wasn't surprising if people were suspicious of him. Claude's or my suspicions of Alberts had nothing to do with Alberts' personality or with his acts. I was making the same point Zednik made. My suspicion illustrated the fact that I, like Claude, had become an instrument of the authorities, that I had to come to think of their enemies as my enemies. The fact that Alberts had shortcomings is as irrelevant as the fact that Sabina had an exaggerated idea of his virtues. This had nothing to do with Claude's or my suspicion. What was Alberts to me? Everyone in the room was listening to the debate, and Zednik was shouting. I don't know how many people agreed with what Zednik was saying, but I do know that everyone understood what he was talking about. He was damning the role he had played in the establishment of the ruling system. When you talk about support, you're talking about obedience, Zednik continued. When you talk about a disciplined organization, you're talking about people who transmit instructions from the higher-ups to those lower down. Uh, in present historical day circumstances, it is impossible to overthrow a ruling social order without discipline and organization, the teacher objected. But my good fellow, Zednik shouted, don't you see that it's impossible to overthrow a ruling social order with organization and discipline? What you're talking about is the reinstatement of the ruling order, not its overthrow. We begin by fighting, not for each other and for ourselves, but for the organization. And we end by suspecting and fighting each other. At the end, it is neither your will nor my will that determines decisions, but the will of the state. Decisions are implemented at the end not by you and me, but by the central organ of the state's will. The police. At that point, our plant militias and trade union councils and action committees cease to be our instruments for overthrowing the ruling order and become the state's instruments for repressing us. At that point, our own initial commitments jump back at us as the state's commitments. That's, of course, what happened here, the teacher admitted. But what happened here was due to very specific historical circumstances, which you leave totally out of account. You forget that the ruling clique used a great deal of chicanery and double talks to secure its power, and that it was largely through this chicanery that they took the workers' organizations away from the workers and transformed them into their own instruments. I don't think it's that simple, and I don't think chicanery is a good word, Zednik said. Chicanery suggests a one-sided relationship, and what I experienced was two-sided. 
I suspect you were among those who helped the present clique to power. Yes, I, but Zednik cut him short by saying, so was I. And I don't remember thinking either that I was duped by those above me or that it was my task to dupe those below me. Do you? I transmitted instructions and waited for the world to change, for factories to be transformed, for the state to disappear, for capitalism to crumble. What was I doing to make all this happen? Transmitting instructions. What were you doing? Of course, of course, said Nick, interrupted again. Weren't we all? Was I a victim of chicanery? No. I was perfectly aware of what was happening. I was transmitting instructions. The next person was transmitting them further, and eventually we all acted them out. As for the factories, the state, and capitalism, I assumed, as everyone around me assumed, that someone would take care of all that, if I took good care of what I was doing. And who was to take care of all that while I was busy carrying out my instructions? The organization, of course. The councils, the union, the workers' movements. I'm powerless, but the organization is all-powerful. Its power and its efficiency were constantly being verified. Don't you remember what proved the power and efficiency of the organization? The efficiency with which it removed its enemies. Here was one, there was another. Right in our midst. The organization removed them both. Thank God the organization knows how to recognize them. Thank God the organization removed them. Thank God the organization knows what it is doing and knows how to bring about my goals. The organization will remove the emperor, the capitalists, the state, the police, and in their place it will institute a new world. All I have to do is obey the instructions and stay at my post. At this point in Zednik's tirade, I thought of the comments you had made in your letter. You and I, after all, merely carried our signs at the appointed time and the appointed place. Did we think that our walks with those signs would undermine the ruling order, or that with our motions we were building a new world? And if we weren't destroying the old world and building the new with our acts, then who was doing this? I'm convinced we were among those Zednik described. It was the same all along the organizational line. The working class had risen, the workers were moving, but we all looked above to see motion. For all of us, only the top moved. Its motion was confirmed by acts of repression. Our enemies were rounded up, and the, the defeat of those enemies was our victory, and our only victory. Soon we thought the victory over those enemies was the ultimate victory. But where had we moved, and where had we started? Didn't we notice that the enemies who were wiped out had never been our enemies? Did we forget that the enemy we started combating was the situation into which we were born? That situation remained intact, yet we experienced a victory. Victory against enemies. Which enemies? Not mine. Groups hostile to the leading group were wiped out, and when the last group of enemies was wiped out and victory was, procla was proclaimed, we found ourselves face to face with the police. That outfit that liquidated the enemies. The only thing our struggle for liberation didn't bring about was our liberation. The police were the only victors. We didn't recover our lost powers. We didn't become communal beings. We didn't even begin to communicate with each other. We didn't constitute ourselves into a community that determined its own relations, environment, and direction. You can't tell me that I was duped. I was wide awake. If I was duped, then I duped myself. No one used chicanery on me. I myself fought for the victory of the entities that held me in their grip, the unions and the workers' councils, the movement, entities which have as much to do with human life as saints and angels. These words, this time the teacher interrupted Zednik. That's the most consistently nihilistic analysis I've ever heard. First you identify the workers' organizations with the police, and then you claim that unions and councils are religious organizations. Precisely, Zednik said. What you call workers' organizations are mere words. Unions, councils, movements, they're words on banners carried by opportunists, racketeers, and gangsters, as well as inquisitioners and executioners. We, you and I, and probably the majority of the people in this room, at one time or another marched behind those banners. We provided the backing, the mask that enabled those gang leaders to call themselves the Union, the Council, and the Workers' Movement. Thanks to our discipline and support, 
The unions and the politicians became the same entity. The struggle to build a new world became synonymous with the seizure of power by the political racketeers. And in the act of supporting inquisitioners and jailers, we became powerless and acquiescent things, at most cannon fodder in their struggles. Only our representatives had the power to act. Our own independent action became impossible and inconceivable. Call it what you like. Our role was to reintroduce religion into a world where it had been dying. We helped empty human beings of their humanity. We helped turn the humanity into an image, a word which we carried in our heads. We dislodged the real potentialities of people from their real gestures and lodged them in the heads of priests. You understood me perfectly. Union, council, movement, all our favorite words became synonyms of heaven. But we never saw heaven. All we saw was the witch hunts and the purges, and we thanked the powers of heaven for liquidating imaginary beings which we experienced as the only evil that oppressed us. It wasn't hard for me to imagine the experiences which had led Zednik to these conclusions. His experiences must have been similar to mine. The entire environment that surrounded us in prison was filled with meanings we failed to grasp. We didn't look or listen. We were spellbound by images we carried in our heads. We failed to grasp the meaning of the walls, or the guards, or the interrogations. We failed to draw conclusions when we experienced what a human being became when he had total power over another. Zednik and I were together during the early part of my first prison term. What I experienced after we were separated should have led me to re-examine my earlier commitments. But I didn't revise them during that term, nor during the four years of my first release. I emerged from my first term with an outlook almost identical to your and Luis's present outlook. Soon after my release, when Jan Sedlik accused me of exaggerating the importance of my clear and distinct ideas, I defended myself with arguments similar to your present arguments. At one point in your letter, you said I had given you the impression that I considered myself more observant and more insightful than you. The opposite is true. I held on to conclusions similar to yours in the face of experiences that completely undermined those conclusions. I was neither observant nor insightful. I was blind. I'm unraveling the significance of those experiences only now almost two decades later. Many of my insights are being formulated for the first time only in response to your letter. During the four years of my first prison term, I seemed to be two different people. One of them saw, heard, and felt events take place. The other responded as if he were deaf and blind. I stored the prison experiences in my memory, but my behavior and my outlook weren't affected by them until several years later. My experience during the first weeks after my arrest was in many ways similar to your experience after your release and immigration when you found yourself alone in a hostile environment. I was an alien in a world I couldn't understand. The prison authorities seemed like beings of a different species. They were cruel, sadistic, and arbitrary. They were incomprehensible to me. These brutes and sadists weren't my likes. They weren't similar to people with whom I had shared hopes and projects. They weren't beings with whom I could communicate. I was filled with anger when I learned that many of the guards had themselves been prisoners during the war and that their most vicious practices were practices they had learned from their jailers. But the impression that the jailers were a different species didn't stay with me. Many guards had themselves been prisoners, and many prisoners had been guards. I soon met prisoners who had been prison or camp authorities or police agents during the war. Their behavior in the cells, in the exercise yard, in the prison corridors, and during the meals didn't differ from the behavior of other prisoners. They weren't a different species. I even met people who had been jailers only a few months or weeks before I met them, and during that brief period they had acquired human characteristics totally lacking in their jailers. And the first person who became a friend, Zednik Tabarkin, had been an integral part of the bureaucratic apparatus before his arrest. Yet when I met him, he was someone whose experiences and outlooks I shared. Did a mutation take place when a person moved from one side of the bars to the other? I'm not saying what you and Louisa understood me to be saying. 
I don't consider prisoners interchangeable with guards. I'm not suggesting that you and I might have been jailers. Such a hypothesis may or may not be absurd. I don't know. It's not my point to explore it. All I'm saying is that at some point I learned that at least some of the jailers were not a different type of being. Below their social function there was something recognizable. Below the gestures and attitudes they had learned from other jailers, I saw other gestures and attitudes. These attitudes hadn't been learned in prisons, but on streets and in factories. They referred to experiences I had shared. They indicated that at some time in their lives these people had engaged in a struggle similar to mine, that they had once taken part in strikes and demonstrations, that they had once shared my perspectives and hopes. Of course this wasn't true of all the jailers. Some were so brutalized that they remained the same on both sides of the bars. It wasn't in them that I recognized any trace of myself. The jailers I'm describing were equally brutish in their behavior, but the brutality wasn't the only component of their personalities. There was something else, something familiar, something that resembled me. The resemblance wasn't superficial. It didn't consist of a mere similarity of words, which in reality had different meanings. What I recognized wasn't the words, but the hopes and experiences behind the words. What I recognized was the experience around which you have built your life. I recognized dreams and hopes I had shared with you and Louisa. The role hid the dreams, just as several years later my role as bus driver hid them. Yet as soon as a bureaucrat like Zednik was dislodged from his post, as soon as a guard was jailed, the person below the mask became visible. Those experiences, hopes, and dreams weren't born after the guard was jailed. They had been there all along, masked by the jailer's social role. It's ironic that some of the guards in whom I recognized my own past experiences were the strictest disciplinarians and the cruelest torturers. Habitual sadists were arbitrary and therefore inconsistent and corruptible and sometimes lenient. But those who had once engaged themselves in a struggle similar to mine and who saw themselves as still engaged in it were incorruptible, pitiless, and unswerving. They were the strictest guards and the cruelest torturers precisely because they were still committed to that struggle. In their own eyes, they weren't cruel, but committed. They saw themselves as embodiments of the working class struggle, and they saw prisoners as enemies of the working class. Their cruelty wasn't aimed against individuals, but against the principle of evil. Through them, the workers' movements was protecting itself from its enemies. Such jailers were convinced that the struggle you and I had waged had been victorious, that the workers had seized power all over social activity. These jailers saw themselves as the protectors of that victory. The proof of the victory was the fact that people like themselves were in power, people whose words expressed the liberation of the working class, whose brains contained a representation of the self-liberation of the workers. Their power over prisoners was the proof of the success of their project. As Zednik observed in his argument with the former politician, these were people who had transformed the workers' movement into a religion. They were its priests. They served their religion by suppressing its enemies. Prisons and concentration camps were the living proof of the religion's victory. Strict surveillance of inmates was the proof of its vitality, and the liquidation of all the enemies would herald its ultimate realization. Carriers of my own project were my own worst torturers. They were my likes, not in the sense that I could have been like them, but in, but in the sense that they carried the project I had carried. And I was their like, not in the sense that I have ever been the jailer of another human being, but in the sense that I still carry the project in whose name they tortured me. Throughout my prison term, I remained committed to the same representations, the same religion. I, too, was a priest. I didn't grasp the repressive character of my commitment. I didn't see that the prisons and concentration camps were the outcomes of my religion's victory, not of its defeat. My previous letter was one-sided. I threw at you conclusions I've reached over a 20-year period, but I didn't describe the experiences which led me to those conclusions. 
I made it seem that you had intoxicated yourself with illusions which I had never shared and which I found incomprehensible. Actually, despite the fact that I recognized my own project in my jailers, and despite the fact that I recognized myself in a former union bureaucrat, my commitment remained unchanged during all the four years of my term, and I left prison with the same enthusiasm that you express. I went out into the world determined to spread that project. Your letter angered me because it reminded me how long and how stubbornly I held on to that commitment. You confronted me with attitudes I had only recently rejected. I had never before couched that rejection in words. You weren't far wrong when you said I was carried away by my rhetoric. I was putting into words for the first time what I had just learned, and I made it appear that I had always known it. I'm now trying to remedy that one-sidedness by describing the experiences which led me to reject the attitudes I once shared with you. It was only gradually that I learned to see those attitudes as a poor basis for present action. Only after innumerable shocks did I begin to see that such attitudes and such behavior were elements of social relations common to religions, that the concrete outcome of such practice was the palace, the church, and the dungeon, and that in an age of fusion and fission, such a project was unimaginably repressive. I experienced another one of these shocks when I learned about our wartime resistance from prisoners who had taken part in it. I met several people besides Zednik who had been active in the resistance. Almost every single one of them had become critical of his part in that struggle only after he was excluded from an official function. Before the exclusion, they, like Zednik, had not questioned the nature of the engagement. This fact is very significant, but its significance isn't the one Louisa read into my first letter. I don't mean that every victim would have been an executioner if he had only been allowed to remain on his post. The prisoners I met would all have been removed from their post eventually. They would all have stopped carrying out their official functions at one or another time. Some would have stopped sooner, others later. They were willing to go a certain line, but no further. They differed from each other in terms of where each drew this line and those who were still carrying out their functions and who therefore seemed so different from the rest of us might draw that line at the next turn or the turn after that. Today's jailers would then join yesterday's victims and be victimized by tomorrow's. What about you and Louisa and me? Didn't we carry a project up to a point beyond which we refused to carry it? Louisa's answer to my last letter is that the project we carried was an insurrection and that my reaction to our former activity is a rejection of insurrection in favor of acquiescence to the ruling order. In other words, I'm a traitor, and no one wants to be a traitor. The fear of being considered a traitor is what keeps most of us moving longer than we want in a direction we've started to suspect is wrong. Those of Luisa's accusers who took part in arresting the enemies of the working class but refused to take part in their execution were accused by the previous-day comrades of turning their backs on the revolution, abandoning their commitment, becoming soft and conservative, and ultimately of becoming reactionary and counter-revolutionary. We become critical only after we cease to go along, and even then most of us become critical only of the events that took place after we stopped going along. I met only one individual who fought in the resistance on his own, who had no connection at all with any organized resistance groups. I no longer remember his name. I'll call him Anton. When I met him, I considered him very different from me and from most of the other people I met. He was completely apolitical. He didn't express dreams or hopes that you and I would have recognized as our own. Anton was a worker a few years older than I, he had many of Ron's traits. He rejected social institutions in practice, but not in words. As a boy, he had left his family, run away to the city, and gotten a job. He rejected all the rules of work and was repeatedly fired for absenteeism and theft. He was evicted from one after another apartment for refusing to pay rent. On the first day of the resistance, he joined a group of people who were building a barricade. He hated the militarists who occupied the city and was determined to do all he could to rid the city of them. When the Liberation Army entered the city, he returned to the barricade and continued shooting. He didn't distinguish between the two armies. To him, they were the same. For him, the resistance hadn't ended. 
He was arrested immediately as an enemy agent and sentenced to life imprisonment. It didn't occur to me at the time that if I hadn't met Louisa, and if I hadn't learned to express myself in political terms, I might have been very similar to Anton when we met. I myself had fought in the resistance with very few political conceptions, since I hadn't learned a great deal from Titus Abram or his friends. The only reason I didn't shoot when the, quote, liberators marched into the city was because of my ignorance. Anton was much better informed than I. When he told me about the events that had preceded the Liberation's Army's entrance into the city, I was convinced that if I had known about those events at the time, I would have shot too. Anton's account of the end of the resistance was identical to accounts I had heard from other people who had fought in it and had been informed about the forces in play. But Anton's account was unique and horrifying. Unlike all the other accounts, it wasn't couched in the political language that had recently become familiar to me. It didn't contain qualifications, the ifs, the political interpretations, and pseudo-explanations. He described a sequence of events whose significance spoke as loudly as drops of blood dripping from a wound. No one I've met ever contested the facts of Anton's narrative. All the other accounts I've heard, as well as numerous figures I've seen, have only confirmed the accuracy of Anton's description, down to the smallest details. Quote, During the first night of the Rising, thousands of barricades were built throughout the city, across streets and alleys. I'm retelling Anton's story from memory. The entire city was held by the inhabitants, except for a few sections, which were still held by the occupying army. The following day, the occupiers mobilized all nearby troops, tanks and artillery, against the city. There were at least four heavily armed soldiers for every three poorly armed workers. Resistors dispatched envoys to the two armies which were on their way to, quote, liberate the city, armies which had been urging the population to rise against the occupiers. Both armies were within a few hours' march of the city. Each of them outnumbered the forces of the occupiers. Yet for three days and three nights, neither army made a move. Camped so close that they could almost hear the shells explode, they waited while men and women and children were massacred in all the streets of the city. Several thousand people were butchered, yet people fought with such determination that the occupying forces were defeated. They capitulated at the end of the third day and started to evacuate the city. On the day after the capitulation of the last occupying forces, the so-called Army of Liberation marched into the city. People who could not have taken part in the Rising, who must have stayed in their basements during all the fighting, lost their heads cheering for these liberators. I got behind a wall and started looting. When I was captured, people looked at me as if I was a lunatic. I've often wondered why more people didn't continue shooting when the new occupiers entered the city. The explanation is that most of the people who would have kept on fighting were killed during those three days and nights. The, quote, liberators waited while people like I were exterminated by the former occupiers. It would have been embarrassing for so-called liberators to begin liberating the city by shooting thousands of its inhabitants. Those who died were those who fought hardest, those who were most exposed, those who would have shot at the next occupiers. And I was called a foreign agent for shooting a foreign army that marched in and occupied the city. End quote. Other accounts I heard differed from Anton's only in terms of the meanings into which the same facts were inserted. Some people considered it reasonable that the Liberation Army had let the occupiers clean up riffraff, like Anton, so as not to have to do it themselves. They considered this a necessary purge of dangerous elements, carried out without trouble or expense to those who benefited from it. Most people weren't so crude as to actually justify the massacre. All those I met admitted that they had known at the time that the Liberation Armies were within a stone's throw of the fighting during all three days and nights. Yet all of them had cheered when the Liberation Army marched into the city on the day after the massacre, when it was already liberated. They admitted the facts only after they were jailed. Earlier, when they'd held official posts, they had denied that the Liberation Army had been anywhere near the city at the time. And even when they admitted the facts, they didn't admit their significance. They suddenly discovered, in their brains, 
all kinds of military reasons for the fact that the Liberation Army hadn't moved. The supply lines were overextended. The rear guard had fallen behind the front lines and left them exposed. They had never dreamed of invoking these reasons before they were imprisoned. They never faced the contradiction between their knowledge and their cheering. They knew that troops, tanks, and artillery had camped nearby where thousands of people were slaughtered. But they refused to see this army as an army. They saw it as the working-class movement. What entered the city wasn't tanks and soldiers, but the representative of the victory of the working class. It was our dreams, aspirations, and hopes that marched into the city. It was the image of our liberation, of our determination to run our lives free of armies and prisons and tanks. This is what these blind comrades saw entering the city when they cheered. I heard Anton, and I sympathized with him, but I didn't learn. I still identified with politicians. Although my own participation in the resistance had been almost identical to Anton's, my later political experiences had transformed me to such an extent that I no longer recognized myself in him. Before I could do this, I had to peel off one after another layer of the political skin that had covered up the person who could have recognized himself in Anton. First of all, I had to peel off the layer I had acquired from Louisa. This is what Manuel did for me. He didn't actually remove that layer, but he provided me with a vantage point from which I was able to remove it. No, Manuel was not an embodiment of my reactionary arguments. He's not an invention. Manuel was a prisoner I met during the second year of my term. In an argument with another prisoner, I was defending the revolutionary potential of unions. At one point, I referred to an example I had heard from Louisa. I illustrated my case by referring to a historical event in which workers had used the union as an instrument with which to carry on their own struggle. Manuel interrupted my argument. He said he was familiar with the event I was citing because he had fought in it. He said he had once agreed with the position I was defending, but that life itself had disabused him of this view. He also said I was supporting my arguments by suppressing nine-tenths of the actual picture. Manuel grew up in a peasant village. Poverty drove him to the city, and he became a transport worker. At the time of the rising of the army against the population, he was a member of a small political organization. He explained that he had not joined this organization because he had selected it from among the others, nor because he agreed with its program more than with other programs, but only because the first worker who became his friend was a member of it. At the time of the Rising, all the members of Manuel's organization were in the streets along with the rest of the population. In a single day, working people from all quarters of the city, having transformed every available implement into a weapon, defeated the army. For an instant, but only for an instant, the population was on the verge of making its own history. For an instant, it looked as if the revolution would spread, as if it would continue to grow until it encompassed all working people everywhere, until all the armies of the world were defeated. But the instant was short-lived. While the smoke still filled the air, unknown to the workers who had risked their lives all day and had seen countless friends and relatives slaughtered, a meeting took place. It was something like a private meeting between the government that had been discarded and destroyed during the day, the government that had lost its armed forces and ceased to function, between that former government and four or five workers. These were not nameless workers. They were not any four or five among thousands. They were workers who were known as fierce fighters and uncom uncompromising union militants. They were workers who were known not to tolerate any authority, whether it be boss or government official. The politician of the ousted old order offered these workers posts in the government. Instead of turning their backs to this wily politician and telling him the workers had just destroyed governments and had become their own masters, these union militants accepted the offer. They told themselves that the government, with their presence, was no longer a government, but a mere organ of the workers' self-government. And they told other workers that they were not a government at all, but a revolutionary committee. They said the state had been abolished. And many workers accepted this. For years they had respected and admired these militants. They had come to regard them as leaders. 
They had seen them as carriers of their own aspirations. They accepted the entry of these militants into the government as their own self-government. When a member of Manuel's own organization accepted a post in this revolutionary committee, Manuel turned in his membership card. He found himself isolated. Gradually he found other people who understood and tried to expose the fact that the Union had not served the workers as an instrument of their liberation, but of their re-enslavement. Ironically, Manuel was arrested shortly after he quit his small organization. The reason for his arrest was his membership in this organization. It was thanks to this arrest that he was still alive when I met him. He learned later that the other individuals he had met who, who tried to expose the incorporation of the Union into the state apparatus had all been shot. In my discussions with Manuel, I countered every observation he made with an observation I had learned from Luisa. I have no idea if he's dead or alive today. At the end of my second year in prison, he was transferred to another prison, and I never heard of him again. During the brief time I knew him, I defended Luisa's views with such self-assurance that he must have known he wasn't convincing me. He must even have thought that I hadn't heard a single word of his account. I'll probably never be able to tell him that I did hear him, years later, and that his account helped me understand not only the event he described, but many of my other experiences as well. It was Manuel who helped me understand the difference between the rebel and the philosopher of rebellion, between someone like Ron and someone like Luisa, between workers and the representatives of workers, by unions, councils, parties, and movements. He also helped me see how easily we delude ourselves and take one for the other, how easily we become carriers of the representation and agents of our own repression. But it was only during my second prison term that I began to hear what Manuel had told me, it was only then that I began to compare his account to Luisa's. As soon as I did begin to replace Luisa's account with Manuel's, I was able to imagine myself a participant in the, men, in the events Manuel narrative, just as I had earlier imagined myself a participant in Luisa's narrative. The day when workers filled the streets and began to build barricades couldn't have been very different from the first day of the resistance here. As in my experience, barricades sprang up in every quarter of the city. The main difference was that in Manuel's account, there was no liberation armies camped nearby observing our slaughter. This difference doesn't blur the similarity of the events for me because I didn't know about those armies at the time. Imagine that we're among neighbors and friends, that during the course of a day and a half we rid the city of the last militarists. Imagine the city is ours to shape with each other as we shaped the barricades. We'll organize our social activity with each other in terms of our dreams. If the possibilities to realize all our dreams don't exist, we'll create the possibilities. We'll communicate with each other, we'll coordinate with each other, we'll organize with each other, without politicians who speak for us, without coordinators who manipulate us, without officials who organize our activity. To communicate with each other, we hold large and small meetings where we exchange suggestions, initiate projects, solve problems. At the largest meeting, we attentively listen to the projects of all, the decisions of all. Yet when we leave the largest of all the meetings, we all feel cheated. We feel that something has been taken from us, that something, somewhere, has gone wrong. At that mammoth meeting, we listened to speeches given by our union militants, by workers who had fought alongside us, who had always been the first to attack. Many such militants have died. We listened to them as we had always listened to them, as our voices, as the formulators of our deepest aspirations, as comrades and fellow workers who had always before put into words the decisions of the union, the decisions of all the workers. Yet at this meeting, the decisions of all the workers were unlike the decisions we had been making with each other since the day we built the barricades. The projects of all the workers were unlike the projects we had launched with each other. Whether it was to repair disabled vehicles or to appropriate a restaurant so as to prepare our own meals. At this meeting, the most militant, admirable, and courageous of our comrades, standing and sitting on the speaker's platform, were transformed into something we cannot quite understand. 
We had come to the meeting in order to organize social activity with each other, and we found our organization on the platform. We had come to coordinate activity with each other, and we found five coordinators on the platform. We had come to formulate our collective decisions, and we heard our collective decisions formulated on the platform. We had always before listened to the collective decisions formulated and expressed from the platform. Yet now we pause, look around, and ask ourselves what it was we had always listened before to. We begin to realize that the decisions of all the workers, the decisions of the union, were the decisions of the secretary of the union, of one individual. One, perhaps five, at most ten individuals had expressed our aspirations, formulated our projects, made our decisions. Yet who are they, those influential militants we had so greatly admired? What is this union? Who is the secretary of the union? Is this really our union, or is it a sham? It's our real union. It's the same union it always has been. The people on the platform are the very people who should be on the platform. They're the militants who devoted their lives to us, who always fought alongside us in our struggles to govern ourselves, to reshape our own social activity, to define the content of our own lives. This is the union we've known. It hasn't turned into a sham. It hasn't been a betrayal. It's we who changed. We changed the day before yesterday. Not all of us. Maybe only miserably few of us. We suddenly discovered our own and each other's humanity only yesterday, and we began to act as a human community. And today we suddenly realize that this union we had fought to build and whose victory we assured the day before yesterday is not a project at all. It is not a human community. It's a power above us, as alien and hostile as the powers we've just overthrown. And now we realize that the project of the people on the platform is about to replace the projects of thousands of human beings who only yesterday learned that they had the ability to initiate projects. We became nauseated when we realized we've just taken part in an event which robbed us of the fruit of our struggle an event in which the representatives of the union of all the workers replaced the union of all the workers. The union had robbed thousands of workers of their eyes, ears, and voices only one day after they had learned the use of organs, which had until then grown weak and passive from disuse. We're learning, and we're nauseated because we're learning too late. Couldn't one of us have gotten up at that vast meeting and shouted? Couldn't he have asked why the influential militants were on the platform the day after we had eliminated the need for influential militants, as well as platforms? Would anyone have heard? Was it already too late even then? Should those questions have been raised years earlier? Should we have shouted them during the days when we ourselves helped to build the workers' organizations and the influential militants in whose grip we now find ourselves? At that meeting, we acquiesced in our own re-enslavement. We accepted the reconstitution of the entire state apparatus. The influential militants who argued that their presence in the state apparatus was equivalent to the abolition of the state will quickly become engulfed by the apparatus. They'll soon be ministers. As rulers, they'll differ in no way from earlier or later rulers. The politicians will let our militants call themselves whatever they please, even representatives of the abolition of the state. These miserable politicians know that they need the influence our comrades exert among us to rebuild the state apparatus. As soon as the legitimacy of that apparatus is reestablished, those seasoned politicians will skillfully use our comrades the way craftsmen use tools. They'll transform the one-time union militants into agents of the state, They'll use the former workers to turn one group of workers against another. They'll use the influential militants as troubleshooters. They'll send them to disarm workers, turn us once again into helpless victims of the army and the state. And like classic monarchs, the influential militants, our one-time comrades, will lull us back to sleep with speeches in which they glorify their rule. They'll tell us their presence in the state apparatus is equivalent to the victory of the working class and the realization of utopia on earth. And some of them will go to greater lengths than any monarch who ever said, I am the people. 
Some of our influential former comrades will not only tell us their rule is our rule, but also that their presence in the government is equivalent to the realization of all humanity's deepest aspirations. Manuel's account destroyed the picture Louisa had drawn for me. I'm obviously not surprised by Louisa's response to my rejection of her analysis of her first struggle. I'm not surprised she considers my rejection of her struggle a rejection of all struggle, nor that she considers Manuel reactionary. Manuel's account shows that the sequence of events celebrated by Louisa didn't lead to the triumph of the workers, but to their repression. Louisa is using the word reactionary the way politicians use it. All those who challenge the politicians' premises are reactionary. In my understanding, a reactionary is a person who favors a return to an earlier system of social relations, an earlier mode of being, an earlier form of political engagement. If the term is to define Manuel or me, it has to be drastically redefined. All my life I've rejected all earlier systems of social relations, including the one I was born into, all earlier modes of living, and for the past ten years I've been rejecting my own earlier forms of political engagement. Since Louisa introduced this term, I no longer see any need to keep myself from asking who among us glorifies, intoxicates herself with, an earlier form of political engagement. Who among us makes a virtual utopia out of a miserable practice that has repeatedly led to the physical and spiritual destruction of those engaged in it? Who among us uses repressive activities of the past as guides to the present and future? If I had thought about it during the past ten years, I would have known that I would never be able to have a comradely or even a polite conversation with Louisa unless she too changed. I knew this as soon as I began to grasp the significance of Manuel's narratives. Yet I learned from your letter that Louisa knew this much earlier, perhaps as many as twenty years ago. You don't seem to realize you told me this. You tell me George Alberts had considered me a hooligan. You tell me this illustrates the similarity of Alberts' outlook with that of my jailers. You also tell me what Louisa thought of Alberts' opinion of me. Quote, Alberts was right. Did she already consider me a destructive hooligan twenty years ago? Manuel helped clear my mind of everything I had learned from Louisa but I had to undergo many other shocks before I could come to grips with the significance of what he told me. During the third year of my present term, several months after Manuel had been transferred to another prison, all the cells filled to capacity. Workers from a small industrial town were crowded into every cell. I had the impression that the inhabitants of a whole town had been rounded up and jailed. All of these workers were furious. I had never before seen so many prisoners with so much spirit and so much anger. They refused to stop shouting during the day or night. They gave the impression that they were determined to bend the steel bars and dismantle the stone walls of the prison. After a few weeks, most of them were released, while a few of them were separated from each other and sentenced to incredibly long prison terms. For the first time since the resistance, the workers of a whole town had risen. As far as I can remember, there had been nothing extraordinary about the circumstances that led to the rising. Worker, working conditions went from bad to worse. Jobs weren't safe. Real incomes were falling. Houses were deteriorating. But the response of the workers grew to proportions which made this e event unique in our recent history. All the workers of the town went on strike and demonstrated their discontent. Unlike workers at previous or later demonstrations, these workers called for the abolition of the political police, the abolition of the factory managers, the ab abolition of union representatives. In Luisa's language, all these workers were hooligans. All their demands were destructive. They called for nothing less than the abolition of the ruling system. One worker proudly told me, quote, when a union rep got on a platform and started lecturing about the victory of the working class, about working and workers administrating their own factories, we carried off the rep, the microphone, as well as the platform. When the police came in to clear the streets of workers, we cleared the streets of police. We thought workers everywhere would follow our example. End quote. These workers were more distrustful of politicians and pedagogues than any workers I've met before or since. They trusted only each other. They learned only from each other. 
They had put an end to the power of representatives, if not throughout society, at least over themselves. Quote, we were able to hold our own against what they call the workers' militia and the workers' police, the same worker told me. But we couldn't hold our own against the army. The greatest achievement of technological progress, the army, defeated them. Approximately half the inhabitants of the town were arrested and imprisoned in the name of the workers' self-administration of their own productive forces. They were repressed by the official representatives of the workers' movement. Their repression was organized by pedagogues whose project is the liberation of the working class. These political racketeers presented the repression of these workers as yet another great stride toward the liberation of workers. It was the seizure of total power over society's repressive apparatus by pedagogues, philosophers, and dreamers that created conditions in which workers were arrested and imprisoned under the banner of their own liberation. Today's fanatics consider human beings obstacles on the paths of their gods. The gods are today called workers, but are in fact mental categories lodged in the brains of pedagogues and have nothing in common with living beings. In the name of these gods, the earthly representatives of these deities, the politicians, recognize no human or natural limits. For the sake of their deities, they depopulate cities and entire regions. These gods are more jealous than the patriarchal despot Yahweh. They don't only demand the destruction of other gods that threaten to stand beside them, they call for the liquidation of all human beings who refuse to bow to them. These are conclusions I drawn from painful experiences. I didn't draw them easily, and I think I can therefore understand why you haven't come to such conclusions. All the experiences of my first prison term didn't affect my outlook until several years later. During those four years, I had learned how workers had been transformed into police detachments which repressed other workers. I had met prison guards whose conceptions had once been identical to my own. I had learned that we had embraced as liberators those who allowed our comrades to be massacred. From Manuel, I learned that all groups and organizations that embody the aspirations of others can only be victorious by repressing those aspirations. I had met workers who had risen against all forms of representation and had found themselves face to face with the entire repressive apparatus of society. Yet after all those experiences, I left prison like a new organizer. It was at the end of those four years that I carried my insight and my project to Myrna and her parents, determined to communicate to them not what I had experienced in prison, but the activities my prison experiences had undermined. I went to them as a pedagogue who had learned nothing about the significance of his own teachings. I went to them determined to enact the same drama yet another time. I think I do understand how you're using what you call your standard of comparison. You're comparing the repressive society that surrounds us with an earlier experience that reproduced the same repression. It seems to me that this experience provides you with a faulty standard of comparison. What you told me about your friend Ron made me think that his genuinely rebellious acts provide a standard of comparison far superior to the orchestrated mass activity which placed the repressive machinery of society in the hands of representatives of human liberation. Your comparison of yourself to Vesna and of your environment to Vesna's cage were very moving but I'm convinced the experience you've preserved with such care does not give you a vantage point outside the cage. I'm convinced you're looking at the cage from a vantage point inside it. You're doing precisely what you say permanent inmates of a prison can't help but do. You're confusing a corner of the prison with the outside world. I'd like to learn more about your life. I found your descriptions fascinating and some of your analysis is profound and informative. But I won't be converted to your life's central project. I was converted to it once, by Louisa, and I'm still struggling to rid myself of my entanglement with it. I can't honestly say I admire you for holding on to that project so tenaciously, and for such a long time. Yarastan.